I invite you today to turn to John chapter 7 as we continue looking at John's gospel, which tells us that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And as we have looked over the last few weeks at John 7, we've seen the shift that Jesus is taking as he has left Galilee for the last time and now has come into Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. And last week, as we looked, we saw um, his teaching there in the temple. And we continue to look at this today in John chapter 7, verses 25 through 36. And we're going to see, yes, the things that Jesus says, but we also see the responses that people have to him. In these uh, uh, 12 verses here, there is this idea of responding to Jesus. Because, as we've seen throughout the book of John... That, that you always have to come to a response when it, when it deals with Jesus. John wrote the gospel, as he said in John chapter 20, that you might believe, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But that, of course, not only implies, but demands there's, a, there's another side of that where, where you may not believe. You may make a choice to walk away, to, to turn from what God says, what Jesus says. And so we see the responses of those around Jesus as he teaches these things. Look at these verses here in John chapter 7 today. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes... Will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing he has said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Father, we are so thankful now for the few minutes we have set aside here to look at your word together today. And we pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would set aside distractions, for there are many in our lives that pull and seek our attention away from that which is most important, your word. And we ask today you would help us to quiet our hearts and minds, you would lay these things aside, and you would speak to us. You would help us to see who you are, help us to see who we are in light of your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond in obedience to you today, whatever that may be. It may be for one today here who needs to place their faith and trust in you, to believe in you that they may have life. Lord, for others, it may be sin that has beset them, that has uh, entangled their lives, that they cannot live as living sacrifices for you. And Lord, I pray today that you would uh, convict our hearts, give us 
the, the ability through your Holy Spirit to respond to you today and see you honored and glorified in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. One of the greatest revealers of ourselves is the instant reaction. You know, when you're caught off guard and, and you have no time to prepare, or when no one is around and something antagonistic happens in your life, how you respond in that moment reveals your character and the heart attitudes that are going on. At the Feast of Tabernacles, that's recorded in John chapter 7, Jesus caught the religious leadership really off guard there in the city because he was absent from the feast, yet in the middle of the festivities, he entered Jerusalem in secret, showing himself suddenly at the temple to teach the things of God. And here the animosity of the religious leadership of Israel towards Jesus once again was exposed, as was their own hypocrisy, as we looked at last week when Jesus spoke to them. And now the response to Jesus and what he says, who he is, begins to ripple out through the crowd that's gathered there that day. And here in this passage, we see the people's reaction to the things that Jesus has said, the reaction of the religious leadership of Israel, and Jesus' grave warning to them that are gathered there. We see that a failure to respond to Jesus in a proper way leads one to eternal separation from God. In this passage, we understand that only those who trust in Jesus' finished work of redemption will be able to enter the eternal presence of God. This is a truth that we all have to come face to face with in our lives. That it is only through Jesus Christ you can gain eternal life. It is only through Jesus Christ you can live in heaven forever. It is only through Jesus Christ that we have new life to live in victory over our sin in which we were once dead and can be made alive in him. And if you have come to the knowledge of this truth and you have believed in Jesus and Jesus alone, you still have to continue to come face to face with this truth because you live in a world full of people who don't know Jesus Christ. And so I would caution you today, you you look at that statement, you say, wow, this is really heavy on the gospel. I'm good on the gospel. We are not good on the gospel. We need the gospel every day. And we live in a world that needs the gospel every day. And I want us to see today, one, the truth of who Jesus is, for that is what we always need to be faced with. But two, how that truth changes our lives and how we need to give that truth to other people. Because, folks, if you're a part of Beaverton Baptist Church, you're, you're, and if you're, if you're a one who knows the Lord is your Savior, you have a calling and a mission to go and make disciples. To go out and share the good news of the gospel with those that you're around. With the boldness with which Jesus himself proclaimed these things. So let's unpack this today and see the, the people that respond to Jesus, how they respond to Jesus, and what that shows us in our lives today. In verses 25 through 29, the first thing that you need to see here, and we see these confused citizens that are coming to Jesus. We see that they're confused over the seeming approval that Jesus seems to be enjoying here as he teaches in the temple. It says, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? Now, if you'll remember back in verse 20, Jesus had, there were these people who, who were responding to something Jesus said. Jesus said in verse 19, did not Moses keep, 
give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So in verse 20, what you have is, is more than likely those are pilgrims, those are people from outside Jerusalem, from other parts of Israel, or, or Jews from other countries as part of the dispersion who have come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and so they respond to Jesus, not understanding all of the things that are going on between Jesus and the religious leadership of Israel. That group now shifts, the focus of the group shifts to a group of people who are citizens of Jerusalem in verse 25. Where the people in Jerusalem ask this question rhetorically, is this not he whom they seek to kill? They, these people, unsurprisingly, are a bit more aware of what is going on in Jerusalem itself and the general tenor of the religious leadership. And their question here in verse 25, that first question they ask, is it's worded so in the Greek that it expects an affirmative answer. Yes, this is the one that, that they are seeking to kill. They are greatly surprised that Jesus has been allowed to speak so openly here in the temple courtyards. He has just accused the religious leadership of hypocrisy, and he's charged them as those who do not keep the law of Moses, though they flaunt themselves as pious guardians of that law. And in their minds, those who have such intentions for Jesus the, the, the citizens look around and say, well, if these, these are the guys that want to kill Jesus, they should be shutting this down and taking, care of, taking up the cause of justice they seem to think needs to be carried out. But instead, we continue reading in verse 26. But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Instead, Jesus has continued to speak openly and teach these things. More than that, they say he, he has spoken boldly unashamedly. And we see that that what Jesus is doing here really is a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 50. This is known as one of the servant songs that's fulfilled in Jesus as the Messiah, where Isaiah says, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who was my adversary? Let, me come, let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like the garment. The moth will eat them up. Jesus is proclaiming the message of salvation in himself boldly and openly. It doesn't matter the opposition that Jesus faced. It doesn't matter those who, who were seeking to, to end what he was doing. He continued to preach these things. Jesus, of course, is the word incarnate. He is God in flesh. And when we see some, we see, what we see in Jesus' life here is what we would see later on in the book of Acts. The early church would mirror these things. They... Would, would give the message of the gospel boldly. And you're going to find something, by the way, the message of the gospel that you and I are sinners and cannot save ourselves, and is only through Jesus Christ, is offensive to a lost and dying world. And it is offensive, as Jesus says these things, to the religious leadership of Israel, whom he is condemning. And those things would continue to be offensive to the religious leadership of Israel as the beginning of the early church. And they would persecute the early church, and the early church would boldly declare the gospel, and they would say things like, we ought to obey God rather than man, when they were told to quit preaching the gospel. 
And that same boldness that Jesus had and that same boldness that the early church had is the same boldness that we should have today. The message of salvation in Jesus is not something to be ashamed of. It is not something that we walk around and we say, somebody says, hey, what did you do yesterday? Well, I went to church, right? Or you say, hey, what did you do this weekend? Well, you know, the pastor preached, well, I don't want to talk about that, right? We're ashamed of the gospel. I mean, for goodness sake, sometimes we're ashamed to go in the restaurant. You ever do the napkin prayer at the restaurant before you eat your food? You drop the napkin all the way down, bless the Lord into the food, you know, no, no, no. We should not be ashamed of who we serve. Because he is the savior of all men. He has given himself for all mankind, for all who respond to him. And at the end of the day, folks, we live in a world where we face a lot less persecution than people like Jesus in the early church did. I should say we live in a part of the world. There are those who face greater persecution than we do. Instead of being ashamed of the gospel, it is something we should proclaim to all in our lives. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is necessary for all. So let us proclaim it to the ends of the earth. Let come what may, the gospel is worth standing up for. And I'm telling you, there is going to come a day in your life that the gospel will cost you more than it ever has before. I'm not here to tell you anything about the political status of our country. You know that's not the way I do things. I'm telling you, the gospel, there will come a day when standing up for the gospel will cost you more than it ever has. That will look different for every person. Will we stand up for what the Word of God says? Jesus' boldness and truth catch the citizens of Jerusalem off guard. The words that Jesus said paralyzed the religious rulers, leading them to question even more who Jesus is. The religious leaders had no response for what Jesus said. You know why? Because what he said was the truth. We saw before what they sought to go after was his credibility and his character, his training, they questioned last week. But they could not go after the things he said, for they were the truth about themselves. And so, these people ask a question here at the end of verse 26. Do the rulers know, indeed, that this is truly the Christ? And of course, Christ is the Greek word for the word in in Hebrew, the Messiah, the promised one, the one who was sent to take away the sins of mankind, to be the deliverer that was promised. The people ask, could it possibly mean that the religious leadership of Israel has concluded that Jesus is indeed the Christ? Now, this is such a preposterous idea that, again, the construction of this very question in Greek is rhetorical, and, and while the first one expected a positive answer, the second one expects a, not a negative answer. The people are perplexed by Jesus and the reaction that he has garnered from those whom they highly regarded in their religion. But now then we see their further response to Jesus as they discuss his origins and they hear his own testimony. Not only do we see here the seeming approval that Jesus is enjoying, but then in verses 27 through 29, as these citizens are very confused, we see the questioned origins of Jesus. However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes... No one knows where he is from. So that question, as I said a minute ago, was was framed in the negative. 
It's preposterous this man is the Messiah, and here's why. They question his identity because they have their own idea of what the appearance of the Messiah would be like. What you have here in verse 27, you have expressed a popular belief of the people, and that popular belief is based on misinformation and misinterpretation of the Scriptures, and probably a little bit of legend mixed in. In their minds, the Messiah would come suddenly to the nation of Israel, and he would be unknown. And so if you have that as the basis of your knowledge of what everybody thinks of the Messiah is going to be, you can understand then why they draw this wrong conclusion. Because they, in their minds, they know Jesus. They know he could not be the Christ because what they claim here is they know all about him. They know he's a carpenter from Nazareth, therefore he could not be the Messiah. But what they failed to do is they failed to listen to the things that Jesus has taught. He told them who he was and where he came from, but they still refused to believe. And the discredit of his credentials was well underway again. But Jesus has a response here for their assumed knowledge in verses 28 and 29. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Verse 28 tells us that Jesus cried out, and literally what that word means, it means to yell. Jesus very forcefully declares this shouting to emphasize his point to all who are listening there, and he speaks again of his incarnation and his heavenly origins. And it's very interesting, again, the construction of this sentence, you both know me and you know where I am from. That can be read two ways when you interpret it, when you translate it from the Greek. It can be read as as an exclamation, as we just read. It can also be read as a question. And and the meaning is is the same either way you look at it here. What Jesus is doing is he's employing irony as he speaks here. In not so many words, he's saying, you think you know everything about me. You know me, he says. Really? Do you really know? Jesus is saying they think they know everything about him and thus can make a judgment about him, but in reality, they are quite ignorant about who he is. They thought they knew him, but they didn't. They thought they had it all figured out, but they were woefully short. And this ignorance of who Jesus is, is traced back to their failed knowledge of God. Jesus was sent as God the Son by God the Father, of which he once again attests to here. He says, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. He did not come on his own, nor is he doing his own thing. He is instead carrying out the plan of God for the salvation of men. We talked about this morning in our Sunday school hour, we talked about a verse, a couple of verses from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, how that at the right time, when the time was right, God sent Jesus Christ the Son. It was part of the plan of God. And with that stinging rebuke, Jesus calls out these people's ignorance of God. Understand, the Israelites, the Jews are very privileged people. They had experienced God's blessing in their lives for hundreds of years. They had seen God do incredible things for their nation. They had enjoyed a very special relationship with God. They were the recipients of God's word. At the time that Jesus spoke 
what they had as their scriptures was the Old Testament. There were 39 books between history and, and prophets and, and, these, and wisdom writings, and they had all come through the nation of Israel to be preserved for all mankind. Yet despite all of these things, they did not know God. Yes, there were those who did. And you see them throughout the life of Jesus, those who truly did know who God is. They truly did know who Jesus would be. But we see the majority didn't know him. Sure, they knew his laws, they knew certain sayings from the word of God, but they did not know him personally. For if they did, they would have recognized Jesus as the Messiah promised and predicted to come just as Jesus had come. But unlike the one standing before him, Jesus did know the Father, for he is one with the Father in perfect communion with him. He is the way to the Father that all of them so desperately needed, but they were stuck in their own thoughts and in their own ways, thinking they knew everything. And here's the truth. You can know a lot of things about God, about Jesus, the Bible, the church, Christianity, and still not know God. Knowing God means submitting to God as Jesus called for in verse 17 that we looked at last week. The Jewish leadership had failed to lead people to God. The people in general had failed then to know their God. And today, you and I can fail to know God. You can substitute anything you can imagine for true knowledge of God. And you will be hopelessly disappointed. But when you come face to face with a need to know God, the only proper reaction is to cry out to him. And as usual, Jesus' words create division and bring about buried reactions. And we see that here in verses 30 and 31. We see the divided reaction of the people. Some of them wish to capture Jesus in verse 30. Therefore, because of things he said, they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So some in the crowd, hearing his words, and these words reaffirmed his deity and indicted their lack of knowledge of God, they react very aggressively to the things that Jesus says. In fact, they, they seek to seize Jesus right then and there. That's what it talks about when they said they sought to take him. They wish to see him arrested. They could do nothing again with what Jesus said, for it was true. You notice that, right? They can't refute the truth. All they can do is react. And it is often the truest things that are said about us that get the greatest reaction in our lives. When God puts his finger on exactly what is wrong in your heart and your life, you react. And sometimes we, we put the defenses up. That's not true. I don't need to do anything with that. And the truth is you do. We have to do something with that. Jesus laid bare the thoughts and motivations and needs of all those before him. And when exposed, the reaction of many was to lash out. And it is much the same today that when we are confronted with sin, many a person will lash out in anger, seeking to seal off their hearts of conviction. And here, actual maliciousness is intended against Jesus' person. However, Jesus, we see, was never in danger. 
The hour will come that Jesus will face the mob and die for mankind's sin, but it has not yet arrived, as John says. So therefore, no one could even lay a hand on him. We understand as we see these displays in Jesus' life that no one is able to thwart the plans of God. God's sovereign plan for salvation would take place right on schedule. And as we have said before, six months from the time that we read here, it would take place. While some sought to capture Jesus, there were others who, ex- who exhibited curiosity in him in verse 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So contrary to those who wish to take him by force, others express at least a curiosity in Jesus. They again pose a question that expects, in Greek, a negative answer. Will he do more signs than these? No, he will not. They had seen Jesus' miracles, and to them, hey, that's as good a case as any to view him as the Messiah. That's basically the thinking here. Now, this does not mean that they have placed their faith in him as their savior from their sin, because we see in John over and over again that miracles are incapable of producing faith, but it does mean that at least their minds were open to what he had to say. And at the very least, the signs Jesus performed marked him as unusual. We see this in the life of a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who exhibited that same type of curiosity and later would, would develop fuller into greater into full faith in Jesus. Now, they may at least accept him as some type of political Messiah fulfilling their ideas. Now, of course, that would still be the wrong approach. For Jesus isn't who you want him to be. You have to conform your beliefs to who Jesus actually is. We must all be open to what God continues to show us about himself and ourselves through the word of God. And all of these events that day are enough not only to stir up the people and and divide them, but also stir up those who directly oppose Jesus, the religious leadership. So we see lastly in this passage today, the concerned leadership of the nation of Israel at the events that are taking place in verses 32 through 36. And in verse 32, there's a very offensive stance that is taken. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. So you have in the religious sphere of Israel, you have two two main sects of that. You have the Pharisees and you have the Sadducees. The Pharisees um, have heard the crowd's assessment of the situation. They've heard the murmuring. They've heard the people saying, well, okay, you know, they've, they've, heard, they've seen the division, but they've also seen the people saying, maybe this is the Messiah because of all the things he's done. And upon hearing this thing, these things, the, the, the threat level in their mind is raised, right? Remember, again, Jesus, they have been, the religious leadership, the Pharisees and the Sadducees both, have been the target of Jesus' teachings here in this last passage. And upon hearing that, the, the people are debating Jesus' merits and begin to even entertain the possibility that Jesus might be the Messiah, that they're concerned about that. So they take action. It says here in verse 32 that they consort uh, with the chief priests to take Jesus. Now, the chief priests would have been made up primarily or exclusively of the, the group called the Sadducees. And just basically what you need to know is the Pharisees and the Sadducees do not get along. 
The Sadducees are made up of, of a more aristocratic group of people. Um, the, the, the high priest position, all of that has turned very political. It's, it's, it's very, very sad the way it has evolved um, in, or really devolved in the nation of Israel. The Pharisees um, are very exclusive, but they're, they're more popular with, with what we may call the common folks of, of Israel. And the two of them, and of course the Pharisees, are very devoted to the law of God and keeping all of these things. And the two of them do not get along, yet the two, both of these groups make up part of what's called the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the nation of Israel, that rules over things in religious matters and other things that are outside the Roman government. But here's the thing, right? A common enemy makes for strange bedfellows. And that's exactly what you have here. You have here the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are united in that they both hate Jesus. They both feel under his, they, they both feel the, 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 the conviction of their hearts under what he says. And so here they come together to oppose him. What is the old saying? The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And maybe they're not friends here, maybe they're more frenemies, you know. But that's what they do. They get together, and it's very possible in verse 32, what you have implied here is that perhaps even the Sanhedrin met together, and they send out these guards, they send out these officers to arrest Jesus. Now, these officers are part of what's known as the temple guard. They were really a kind of police force, and they were made up of the Levites who were there to serve all things regarding the worship of God. And they were responsible for maintaining order on the temple grounds. And the Sanhedrin, that ruling body of Israel made up of these religious leaders, had freedom to employ these temple guards in the things that don't pertain to Roman policy. And so this is a religious disagreement. This is such a case. The Romans aren't going to be involved in this, so they're going to send send the, the guards out to arrest Jesus. And this tension of the guards arriving to take Jesus. I don't want, you to, I don't want us to miss this. Uh, we're not going to resolve that tension today. It's actually not until almost the end of the chapter that, that this is resolved. So everything you see from here to the end of chapter 7, which we're not doing all of that today, obviously, these guards, this tension is still there. They have come to arrest Jesus, and when they come to arrest Jesus, everything else that you see takes place. And so with the temple guards in view, John relates to us what else is exchanged between Jesus and the religious authorities. We see in verses 33 and 34 the sobering warning that Jesus issues. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Jesus once again emphasizes his heavenly origins with this next statement. And it is one that has the future of his ministry and his mission in mind. I told you before, Jesus will not die at this feast, but in six months, at the next feast, he will, at the Passover. And after he has died for the sins of mankind, he has risen, he has been on earth for a time, he would ascend again to his Father in heaven. We read about that in Acts chapter 1. Jesus, as omniscient God, knows what the future holds. And so he states that he will be with them only a little while longer because once the mission is complete, he's going to return to the Father. The Father sent the Son for the redemption of mankind. Therefore, he would, Jesus would return to the Father's side once his mission was complete. 
And Jesus then delivers the sobering reality for at least some, if not all, who were gathered there that where he is going, they would not be able to come. Now, this is not because he was going to a place where they would not go, which we'll see in just a minute, or because he was hiding. But this is because there is a failure to believe. If they would not choose to place faith and trust in him, they would not enter the presence of God for eternity. That is what Jesus is saying here. The nation of Israel as a whole sought release and rest. They sought deliverance and leadership. But they were, many were unwilling to submit themselves to the call of Jesus to trust him. So therefore they would find no rest, no peace, and no deliverance. Because the physical deliverance that they so desperately sought was in fact the deliverance they needed the least. They needed spiritual deliverance from their sin. The warning that we read in Psalm 95 this morning could be applied here. Psalm 95 verses 8 through 11. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me they tried me though they saw my work for 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest the psalmist here speaks of the Israelites as God released them from bondage in the nation of Egypt and that was a group of people who did not trust God Though he had done myriads of things for them, though he had showed them his infinite power, they came to Kadesh Barnea, which is on the cusp of Canaan, and there they exercised their unbelief in God and forfeited the blessing of God. And so they would wander in the desert for 40 years, a generation dying off until God would deliver the next generation into the promised land. And just like those people failed God, failed to exercise faith and trust in God. The people that Jesus is speaking to that day stand on the precipice of the same thing. They stand in need of repentance and faith. And Jesus warns them, where I am going, you will not come. Again, not because he is going to hide, but because they refuse to believe. And again, it is much the same in the world we live in. It's much the same in our hearts and lives today. That if we do not place our faith in Jesus, we cannot enter eternity. And just like the Israelites thought they knew what they wanted or what they needed in the Messiah, what you and I think we need in God most often isn't what we need. You ever made a bargain with God in your life? Hey, God, if you'll do this, then I'll trust you. If you'll do this, I'll. You don't need that. What you need is trust in God to save your soul. You can look in a million different places or believe in a million different things, but Jesus alone is the answer. And you may be this way as the Israelites were, these Jewish leaders, or you may know someone who is. And we understand here, The message of who Jesus is, is exclusive. 
And it doesn't meet a warm reception in a world ever pushing for what I would call a false inclusivity. And I say it's false because it's very inclusive until you start adding the truth and then it's not inclusive anymore. But just because you don't like something doesn't make it not true. My friend, there are no other ways to God. Not all religions lead to the same God. There is only one way. And if you have not trusted in Jesus alone, you cannot enter the presence of God. And if you are a Christian and you are content to go on living your life with no burden for people around you, you are not following God's call on your life either. You need to be reaching others with the hope of the gospel. You need to be willing to give them the truth of Jesus. If we could ask it very simply, if you won't, who will? We cannot live our lives unaffected by lost souls. I remember when I was during my time in college that I think it was just about every time one of these guys got up to speak, it was the same guy every time, he would say this, people are dying and going to hell today. And then he would have us repeat it. All of these couple thousand students in an auditorium, people are dying and going to hell today. That is a very sobering reality. That there are people who are leaving this earth and waking up to spend eternity separated from God. And we have the message of hope. Not because it's about us, because it's all about Jesus Christ. We have the opportunities given to us by God to invest in their lives. We are commissioned by Jesus to go and make disciples because there is no guarantee on tomorrow. God knows the end from the beginning, and today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to reach others with the gospel. And we understand Not all will respond positively to the gospel. This is not a, hey, if you'll go out this week and share the gospel with five people, all five of them are going to say, yes, that's me, and come to church with you and accept Jesus Christ. If you share the gospel with anyone, you probably understand that doesn't happen very often, right? It takes time. It takes investment. And again, at the end of the day, you may have someone in your life that you witness to for the entirety of your life, and they choose to turn away. It's a heartbreaking thing. But everyone must make a decision about Jesus Christ. And indeed, those on the receiving end of Jesus' very words that day did not respond positively. Look at the contemptuous contemptuous reply that Jesus gets in verse 35 and 36. Then the Jews, which would be the Jewish leadership, said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing he has said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The religious leaders and others who are opposed to Jesus now scoff at what Jesus says because they cannot imagine Jesus going anywhere that they could not find him. They are a very proud and earthly-minded bunch, and so in their pride of their hearts, that blinds them to the truth, they interpret what Jesus says with a very earthly twist. That if he is going somewhere they cannot find him, or where they cannot go, he must be referring to leaving Israel. Indeed he was, 
but not the way they were thinking, right? They reason that he will go to the dispersion. Now, the dispersion refers to the Jews who live outside Israel amongst the Greeks, or you could say the Gentiles, and that Jesus would go out there and he would minister to the dispersion and really would minister to the Greeks himself. This is the lowest of the low, that Jesus would minister to the Gentiles instead of his own people. And what they're saying here is is no self-respecting Jew, let alone the Messiah, would do that. Yet, he would, just as God planned all along. Because through Jesus, as God promised Abraham, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And somebody should say amen. Because it's because of that that you and I sit here today. Indeed, we hear here rejoicing in the gift of salvation offered to us. Jesus told them in the previous verse, he said, I'm going to return to the one who sent me, to the Father. But because they would not accept his heavenly origins, the Jews once again missed where their faith should have been placed. This is a sad scene to see Jesus' own people respond to him with such contempt. Indeed, as John said in John chapter 1, he came into his own, and his own received him not. At the end of verse 36, what you have there is them taking that phrase that Jesus said and mocking him with it. Let us not be the same. Let us embrace the salvation of our souls in Jesus and let us live for him because only those who trust in Jesus' finished work of redemption will be able to enter the eternal presence of God. John wrote this gospel that we may believe Jesus is the Son of God and that believing in him we might find life in his name. And that life requires a choice of belief and faith. It means trusting in Jesus alone recognizing his identity as the Son of God. My friend, today is the day of salvation. I would implore, encourage, beg you if needed, that if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone to be your Savior, make that choice today. Respond to the call of his grace in your life. There are no alternatives that are going to present themselves in your life. There are no, there's no hope outside of Jesus Christ alone. If, if God has been working in your life, I encourage you to respond, to recognize your sinfulness before his holiness and embrace his love justly offered to you in Jesus. And Christian, your mission is to live for God and share his message with others. Understand that the church, both universal and a local body cannot grow effectively unless the members of the church, those who know Jesus Christ as Savior or members of that local assembly, do not go out and make disciples. That is how we grow the kingdom of God. We don't grow a church by assimilating people who aren't happy with their church. Now, if you come here from another church, I'm not telling you to get out, okay? You're welcome here. But I'm here to tell you We're not out here looking to steal sheep. We're we're out here looking to win souls and disciple people and help them to grow in the kingdom of God. We have to fulfill the great commission, bringing others the hope of Jesus and showing them their need 
to make a decision regarding Jesus. And so ask yourself, who do I have in my life that needs to hear the gospel? And if you answer that question, well, I don't know anybody, then you need to go find somebody. You need to join a, a sports team. You need to join a, a, you know, some, whatever it is. <laughs> I didn't have anything better than that. You need to put yourself in the way of people. Even if it's just, hey, I'm going to go down, I'm going to drink coffee at the same shop every week on this day and try to see if there's anybody regular there or get to know the people that work there because I want to reach people with the gospel. That's what we need to do. We need to put ourselves in the way of people. And if you do know people that need the gospel and you haven't given them the gospel, what's holding you back? You say, well, I, I'm, I don't know what I would say. Give them the word of God. I don't know where I would go. Well, we can help you with that. Be happy to, to help you get some basic understanding of how do we show people the gospel? How do we show them their need? Your eternity is determined by how you respond to Jesus. Your impact as a child of God is then determined by the decisions you make for Jesus with God's help. So let us respond to Jesus' work in our lives today. Whether it be for faith in him or for further living for him in the gospel. Father, we thank you for the words of your son that are recorded and preserved for us here to read today. Lord, we ask that you would help this today, not just to be an exercise in uh, normality, that this is what we always do on Sunday. We come and we go to church and we hear the pastor speak and we go home and this and that. But Lord, we ask that you would help this to be a life-changing opportunity because we have again heard your truth proclaimed from your word today. Lord, I pray you take these feeble efforts and use them in an incredible way because it's your word that we have studied here today. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would give courage and boldness to one today who is wrestling with the truth of the gospel, that you would give them the courage to speak to someone today, to reach out, to find the hope of the gospel, to enjoy eternal life. Lord, I ask that you would be with Christians that are gathered here today Lord, there are many in this room that represent hundreds, if not thousands of lives that are touched every week. And Lord, we have the opportunity to reach with them, these people with the gospel. Lord, help us to do so today. May you burden our hearts. May you give us courage and boldness to this end. We ask now as we close our service that we would do so in a way of honoring you and glorify you, lift you up. And Lord, may you bring us back here tonight to worship you. In your name we pray.